you so much for joining us this week at Zion City Church with teachings from Pastor Andrew Rael. We believe that God still speaks through His Word and His people. So right now, lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit. We hope that this message encourages you, inspires you, and brings you into a deeper love and worship of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of Zion City Church. wrenching more heartbreaking than losing somebody that you love you know as a pastor I've stood in a lot of rooms with a lot of families as they're saying goodbye to the ones that they love I myself have been in the room of my own family members and and, and my own friends who have gone to be with the Lord I've stood at too many funerals Um, I've spoke at funerals and there's nothing more gut-wrenching than death. You see, death, it it, it hollows out your bones. It, It leaves you feeling just like there's something deeply wrong about what has taken place. At a funeral, your, your soul groans because you know that this is not the way that it was supposed to be. And no matter how many you've been to or, or how often it's happened, there's never a time that death becomes any easier. I like what Tim Keller says. He says this, We know deep down that we are not like trees. We aren't like the grass. We were created to last We don't want to be just a wave upon the sand, but our deepest desire is for a love that lasts. And I love that beautiful way of describing things, that there's something in us that cries out when we experience death in the life of somebody that we love. But also something profound happens is that when somebody you know dies, there's this moment in time where it seems that space and time itself cease for a moment and you become aware of your own mortality. You suddenly become aware, no matter how busy you've been, no matter how many things have been going on, that suddenly in a moment you get this vision of clarity that your life will one day end. That you too will will have a moment like this where friends and family are gathered around to come and to remember you, to celebrate your life. And this thought does not sit well within us. You see, we create all these different mechanisms to deal with the reality that each of us will one day die. First is that we ignore it. For a lot of people, this is the this is the hand that this is the card that they play, right? It's that anytime death, uh, the thought of death um, comes into your mind, we shut it down, right? Don't think about it. Don't talk about it. Don't think about talking about it, right? That any moment that rises up in you, that one day you are going to die, comes into your mind. You shut it down. You suppress it. You shut that door. You lock it and you throw away the key to hope to never find it again because suddenly fear overwhelms you and you can't possibly fathom that moment. 
For other people, uh, when, when they are aware of the reality that one day they will die, they like to indulge, right? They take the mantra of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, right? That if this life is all that I have, that I'm going to do everything that I can to experience everything that I can and, and enjoy all of the goodness right in this world. They run from the reality of death by drowning themselves in distraction, right? I'm not going to think about it, but I'm just going to fit in in every square inch of my life as much pleasure and luxury and experience as I possibly can to numb out this feeling that my life is a vapor. And for others, they handle it with indifference, right? You become callous to the reality of death. You've silenced any bit of grief and sympathy and you've just chalked it up in your mind to be as natural as breathing. We're going to die someday. What are you so worried about? Just live your life. Again, Tim Keller says this, to say, oh, death is just natural is to harden and perhaps kill a part of your heart's hope that makes you human. Every single one of these endeavors is an effort to comfort this great reality that each of us someday will die. Now the question that I ask, that here asked most often in times of great tragedy or when somebody loses their life is the question, why? Why did this happen? Why did God allow this to happen? Even if someone had the answer, I don't think it would satisfy the void in your heart. You see, we ask the question of why, but that's not the actual answer that we're looking for. That's not the question that needs to be asked because there would be no answer that somebody could provide that would reconcile how you're feeling in that moment and what had just taken place. There would be no explanation that could be given, right? That would, that would bring you any sort of peace about losing someone you loved. What you're not looking for is an explanation. What you are looking for, however, is comfort. Now we know according to the scriptures that death was never in God's design. That when we experience death, something in us cries out that this was not the way it was supposed to be. And that cry is absolutely right. God did not initiate into the world's death. We see this in Genesis, that God created humans to, to live and to cultivate and to create alongside Him forever. But it was us who rebelled against Him. You see, death is the result of, of us sinking our teeth into the promise of evil. And vandalizing God's good world with sin, destruction, selfishness, and evil. When we believe the lie that the promise of evil tells, and that when we vandalize God's good world, in came death. Now it's not God's heart, it's not God's design, but how do we deal with it in a manner that honors Jesus and that's true to how we're feeling and the emotions that we have. How do we as followers of Jesus navigate through loss and find comfort for our grief? Paul says here in our, his letter to the Thessalonians at verse 13, 
Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. The church in Thessalonica was experiencing a deep moment of grief. Most Bible scholars believe that um, uh, parts of their church had been killed as a part of their persecution where they were. As they were turning their city upside down with this message of Jesus, that some of those people were killed, were martyred because of what they preached. And this church was mourning, was grieving the loss of their brothers and their sisters. Now, Paul writes to them, he doesn't want them to be uninformed about the hope that we have, right, and how, how to grieve with hope. He says, because when we are uninformed, we grieve like everybody else. We grieve like people who do not have hope. When you are uninformed about the hope that is found in Jesus, you grieve without any sense of hope. For followers of Jesus, our response is to grieve, but to grieve with hope. You see, Paul wanted to instruct the Thessalonians about what would be coming and the result of them preaching this message of Jesus and the reality of persecution in his day and age. But as you guys know, we've been through multiple times. Paul was only there for a very short time and had to leave because he was pushed out of the city. And so he's trying here and now to instruct them on how to grieve well. But the first step for us in any direction dealing with any sort of loss is we need to first step into grief. You see, the Bible calls followers of Jesus to mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep, and rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, in a lot of Christian circles, when really tragic or bad, thing hap bad things happen, or even death, they try to do these super spiritual Christian language around things and try to make light of the situation and remind people of God's promises. Though I think their intention is good, their practice is bad. Now, though their theology may be correct, and they might be reminding them of, 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 of good things and the promises of God, they are missing an opportunity to be like Jesus. The response to tragedy and heartbreak and loss is not, you know, quoting verses and, and laying strong theological foundations. The call is to weep. It's to mourn. It's to grieve. We do a great disservice to people in the thick of loss when we treat them in this manner. You see, when Lazarus died, Jesus' friend, and he shows up on the scene, before Jesus performs any sort of miracle, Jesus weeps. He weeps at the loss of his friend. Now briefly, we're going to take a small detour here. I want to talk about um, some conversations specifically I'm hearing around coronavirus. What breaks my heart, and I believe breaks the heart of Jesus, is in the moment that we are in, I hear some followers of Jesus say, only X amount of people have died because of the virus, or only high-risk people have died in an effort to provide some sort of perspective onto the situation. However, when we dismiss the loss of a life in order to give perspective, in the moment I believe we are grieving the heart of God. You see, because those numbers on a screen are more than a statistic. 
their mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, friends, co-workers, colleagues. They are made in the image of God and they are loved deeply by Him. The call of followers of Jesus is not to provide perspective on how many people have died in relation to how many people there are in the world. But the call for followers of Jesus is to grieve. It's to weep. It's to be like the Lord in tenderness and grace and sympathize and empathize with those who are hurting. Now, I'm not speaking about political agendas, economic decisions, party lines, or policies. I'm talking about people. Have we become so callous that to make a point, we will dehumanize a death to be right about our politics? Now, there's a way to have conversations and disagreements and make your point known without ever making the light of loss. And so, as your pastor, I want to encourage you to remove this language immediately from your vocabulary. Because any loss of a life is, 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 not, is not worthy of being used as an argument for your politics. It's a moment to grieve. And you can argue and you can disagree and you can have your points of view about what way is best and how we move forward and what policies and procedures that have place take place and to never use a death to make that point. Now, for us followers of Jesus, right, the response isn't only to grieve, but is, is to grieve with hope. Paul goes on to say this, verse 14, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so that we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So here's what's happening. The Thessalonians are heartbroken because dear friends, dear followers of Jesus in their community have passed away. And they're worried that in somehow them dying, when Jesus comes back, they're going to miss out on something. They're going to miss out on his return. They're going to miss out on God gathering his family together. And they were worried and grieved about it. And Paul writes them to encourage them that is certainly not the case. That they will be gathered together at Jesus' second coming when he returns again. And um, I, I want to briefly nuance some things out as we have this conversation around hope. And I want to be clear. Hope is not a wish, right? The way we use hope in our language now is, I hope the interview goes well, or I hope that that happens for you, or I hope that the, the it doesn't rain on your wedding day or whatever, right? And that kind of hope is not a biblical vision of hope. That's a vision of a wish, right? You wish that those things take place. But hope is, is a strong confidence in God's future. Hope is a strong confidence in God's future. And this is what I mean by that. It means that based on who God has been and the things that God has done, you can have assurance, you can have hope that He will be the same in the future. 
And for followers of Jesus, this means that our hope is rooted in who God is. Our hope is rooted in who God is. Our hope is not in an ideology. Our hope is not in a political party. Our hope is not in anything other than the person of Jesus. That Jesus is who our hope is in. And for us, our hope was born in the empty tomb. The fact that Jesus rose from the grave gives us hope that we will have a future and a life with him forevermore, just as he promised. You see, for followers of Jesus, our hope is not that one day we go to heaven when we die. That's not the Christian hope. The Christian hope is in resurrection. The Christian hope is in the fact that we know that Jesus rose from the grave, so we too will rise from the grave and live together with him. Paul does a beautiful exposition of this in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. Paul says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but what hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. The first thing Paul says this is, we are going through great and immense suffering. The reality of living in this world is hard and it's heartbreaking and it's tough and it's filled with pain and suffering. But he says, if we were to put this on a scale with the glory that's going to be revealed, right, with the life that we're going to have with Jesus forever and the sufferings now, they're not even worthy to be compared. That the glory is so much greater, it outweighs our pain by leaps and bounds. He then goes on to say that all of creation is awaiting, is eagerly anticipating that when we would be resurrected. Because all of creation knows that when we become resurrected, all things will be made right again. He goes on to say that not only does creation feel that way, but inwardly, even in within ourselves, we are groaning for this moment where we will be freed from our own brokenness and be whole again with Jesus. He also tells us that, that hope is a lesson in waiting. That hope is a lesson in waiting. You see, he says, 
how can you have hope if you see what's already happening, right? That's not hope. Hope is a strong confidence in God's future. We can't see the future. We don't know the future for certain, but we know who God has been and we know who he will be and we know he's been faithful to his word. And so though we may not know all the details and ins and outs and how it's all going to work out, we know that he will be faithful. But as we wait for that moment, it teaches us a few things. One, it teaches us our desperate need for him. That in this life, we can't go living by our own strength, by our own wisdom, by our own way. But we are constantly in desperate need for Him. That each of us desperately need Jesus. It teaches us also that His grace is sufficient. That even though we have things that we go through that are challenging, that are difficult, and that are hard, that as we persevere because we have hope, we realize His grace sustains us even in the hardest moments of our life. Lastly, we learn that His power is made perfect in our weakness. That even if we suffer and even if we struggle, that in those moments, God's power is being revealed. There is no way I would be able to endure, go forward, live in a moment that I'm currently living in without the power of God working in my life. And for us as followers of Jesus, this means that the family will be reunited. That when no matter who has, as Paul says, gone to sleep or has passed away, that God at his second coming, when he comes back to earth again, will be gathering his family together. No one will miss out on the return when Jesus comes back. So this begs the question, well, what happens when we die? Right? Like, this is some good theological thank you. I have hope because Jesus is coming back. But what the heck happens to me when I die? Now, there's been a popular teaching and there's a popular phrase even that, you know, I just want to make sure that I go to heaven when I die. I just want to make sure that you go to heaven when you die. But this language is nowhere to be found in the scriptures. This idea of going to heaven when you die is not found in the scriptures. Instead, we have this paradigm. We have our time here on earth. We have what the New Testament writers called this time of sleep. And then we have the resurrection. Now, this idea of sleep, as Paul says here, is a euphemism for death. And we know that this, this period in time is the in-between between when we die and resurrection. Now, what that looks like. Jesus says to the thief on the cross, he says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus also tells a parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And that Lazarus as is in this moment between right his death and this time of resurrection. He's in this place called Abraham's bosom or Abraham's chest. Paul expands on this idea and he says to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. And so there is some language around this being heaven, but that's not the goal and the thrust of the New Testament. The Bible says very little about this phase here and uses all of its energy, all of its resources, all of its conversations to focus here on the resurrection. Notice how in that in that passage of Romans 8, Apostle Paul, he does not say, your hope is in the fact that one day you'll be in heaven. He says, your hope is in the fact that one day you will be resurrected. 
Now, this is this brief time where we will be in this space and place with God, paradise, Abraham's bosom, sleep, right, present with the Lord. And we don't know much about this. And the New Testament authors aren't really interested in telling us that much about it because their focus, their goal is on resurrection and the new Jerusalem coming down and us reigning and ruling with God here on earth. So... The paradigm before is that when you would die, you would be as like a little spirit and you would go into heaven and there there's angel babies and harps and weird things like that. That's not a paradigm found in the scriptures. Instead, is that when you die, there's this moment where you are with Jesus. You are present with him as Jesus calls paradise. But it's all in waiting for this moment of resurrection where Jesus returns and he calls all people to himself our bodies are resurrected and then we enter into the time of judgment where God judges uh, humankind. And from there, God reestablishes a new heavens and a new earth by making all things new. Now, what's important here is it doesn't say that we're going to make new things, but rather he's going to make all things new. He's going to redo what was done. He's going to tear everything down to the studs and rebuild again with his people. Now, this idea of sleep, Paul uses on purpose because this begs the idea of having to wake up again. I love this parable of Jesus is when he goes to heal a young girl and she has passed away and everybody is grieving her loss. And he says, she is not dead. She is merely sleeping and he brings her back from the dead. This idea of resurrection, right? Paul is drawing on that same idea, saying these brothers and sisters who have died are actually just sleeping, and God is going to resurrect them again. They are going to awake again. And so the focus of the biblical authors is resurrection, not this holding place of heaven. All of it leads towards Zion, the new Jerusalem, God ruling and reigning here with humans on earth forever. So, Paul goes on to say, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with him, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. So, I want to pause here. This passage has been famously used for the teaching of what's called rapture theology. If you're a child of the 90s, right, or you grew up in church culture in the 90s, you are very familiar with this teaching. Now, I do want to have a conversation briefly about the rapture um, and then talk a little bit more about what I think this passage is talking about. So first, when we deal with this theology of the rapture, we have to first understand where it came from. So with all the best research that you can do, there is no evidence of any sort of rapture theology before the 1820s. That means... Any teachings, any sermons, any thoughts of early Christian leaders, this is nowhere to be found until the 1820s. It was largely popularized by a man named John Darby, 
who uh, the, the, the story goes that he was in a prayer meeting when a young girl by the last name of McDonald received a vision that there would be a rapture of the church. And this teaching was taken by John Darby and popularized, getting to the hands of D.L. Moody, um, which translated into the Schofield Study Bible and became very popular here in the States. A thing that we see concerning this as well is that this is largely popular in the West, that for the rest of the Christian world, the rapture theology is really nowhere to be found. Now, even uh, people who believe in the rapture really only have two passages that they believe this is teaching on. One is Matthew 24, and the other one is here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the two verses that I read you. Um, there's a lot of conversation about Matthew 24 and how um, it's, it's a very famous passage of one will be left, one will be taken, one will be left, one will be taken. And they think the people who are taken, right, is this idea of the rapture. However, even um, uh, scholars who believe in the rapture say Matthew 24 is not a good passage for that because the people who are taken away is this idea of judgment. And we don't have a lot of time to dissect that here this morning. I'm happy to have further conversation about that at another time. But the other one is here in 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the bread and butter for the rapture theology. Now, I do not think that this is what this passage is talking about, and I'll go on and explain that in a moment. But before I do, I want to have an honest conversation about this theology of the rapture. I believe that the theology of the rapture, and again, I could be wrong. I don't think that I am, but I could be wrong. Um, I, I don't think that it's helpful or consistent with the rest of the, script, the teachings in the scriptures. I believe that it teaches an escapism mentality that that the world is just bad and it's getting worse and God is going to pull us all out and judge the whole world and then we'll just be with him together in heaven forever. And I don't think that's what the Bible teaches at all. I think the Bible teaches that God is in the business of renewing and redeeming the world through his people. And he does that through the church. And all the efforts that are being made is so when Jesus returns, he will make all things new again not new all new things but all things new and redeem and reconcile and heal and be here on earth with him forever that is the thrust of the whole new testament or the whole scriptures rather it is you know heaven and earth being together in eden and being separated by sin and god's efforts to reconcile them back together heaven god's space and earth our space to one again where we live with him forever we see that clearly in revelation 21 and 22 as the new city comes down onto earth and we rule and reign with him forever so you ask then what is this passage talking about now, what's really important to always remember is the scripture authors are always using Easter eggs. They're always hinting and leading these metaphors and these clues to lead you back to other places in the story. This happens over and over and over and over again in the scriptures, that they all pull and use one another to further elaborate points. And Paul is is a classic guy at mixing metaphors. He's going to take all these different nuggets and pieces to try and paint you a picture of, uh, of to describe what this will be like. I don't think Paul is being literal here at all, just like in the next section. He makes reference to that the Lord will be like a thief in the night. I don't think it's li there will literally be a thief, right? He says that it's going to be like labor labor pains for a pregnant woman. There's not going to actually be a pregnant woman. He's going to say that there's going to be... Um, 
not to get drunk, but instead to put on your armor. And so there's all these different metaphors that Paul is using to describe um, what the day of the Lord, this day of judgment will be like. And all of those aren't literal. They won't literally be a thief in the night or literally be a pregnant woman, or you won't literally just not get drunk and literally have to put on armor, right? That's not what he's saying there, but he's using these images to paint you a portrait of, of what that moment will be like. And I believe Paul is doing the same thing here. The first part is he says, For the Lord will himself come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. There he's drawing on images from Exodus as Moses is coming down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and there's the trumpet call to hear God's law read. It is that same idea of, of, of having met with the Lord, him coming down. He's drawing on that same imagery there from Exodus. Then he jumps to the next one where he says, And after that, we who are still alive together will be caught up together with him in the clouds. If you were steeped in the scriptures, your mind would immediately go to Daniel chapter 7. And this is a, this is a crucial passage for the whole New Testament. As Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, but we see this portrait in, in Daniel chapter 7, where there's this Son of Man who is an, an endured through great hardship and suffering, and he is being brought up on the clouds into the presence of God and is there where he sits and reigns and rules with 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 the the ancient of days is what Daniel calls him but what is which is God the father for all of eternity and it's this picture of 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 Jesus being exalted to the father after all that he would endure and so Paul is drawing on the same injury to say we will too be glorified and will be Taken up together with him on the clouds. And so people think that he means he'll be coming out of the clouds, but that's not the imagery in Daniel chapter 7. The imagery is that he is going up on the clouds to be with him. And this is that we will meet with the Lord in the air, meaning that as we are being exalted and glorified, being given our new resurrected bodies, that there will be this meeting with Jesus in the air as this, as this glorification is taking place, right? Now we will rule and reign with him on earth. The next thing is is the Greek word here. This 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 uh, he will be coming. This idea um, is the Greek word per, perusia, and it has this idea not necessarily of coming, but of presence. And it's this it's this, this Greek word which would encapsulate an idea. If you would hear this word as a Thessalonian, you would know what Paul's drawing on. Now this isn't a biblical word. It was actually a word used to describe how you would respond when a king or Caesar would show up to your city. The, the perusia of a king coming would mean that everybody in the city would go out and, and, and create this royal entrance for the king to come into their city. I want you to imagine a fortified, walled city. And as the king is approaching, he announces himself. The king has returned and the gates fling wide open. And all the citizens come out to greet and to welcome the king, right? It would be incredibly rude. Um, and there would be political statements being made if the king showed up and nobody went out to greet him, right? And nobody showed him the respect that he was due. And so this idea, this word means that the king is now present. And so for us to go and to greet him and this is the imagery that Paul is drawing on. Not this idea that we will be zapped up in the clouds, gone forever and with him in heaven and as he judges the earth, but rather when he returns at his second coming, that we will meet him, we will greet him as he comes in, as we are being glorified and exalted, as God's presence is being made known to us fully, we will welcome him to his 
earth. And he will establish his rule and reign here. Now, there may be some of you hearing me right now who disagree. And that's totally fine. That's one thing that I love is that we can disagree about these things. And if I'm wrong, it's all good, right? And if you're wrong, it's all good. It doesn't change the reality of Jesus' second coming. No matter where you land in rapture theology, we all believe in the second coming of Christ. We all believe in ruling and reigning with him. It's just about how that happens that we disagree. Now, if we read this passage the way I believe it was meant to be read, then this passage makes sense. You see, the comfort for Paul telling the Thessalonians is not, hey guys, don't worry, one day you're zapped out of here. But instead, he says, your comfort is that when he returns, those you have lost will be reconciled to him and he will rule and reign and make everything right again. And this is, I believe, the thrust of the New Testament, right? That, that, that comfort comes not just from getting out of this really broken world, but rather being a part of the work that God does to renew and make it new again. And Paul closes this section of his letter by saying this, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Meaning what? Meaning right now we're in a time and space where we long for the King. We long for Jesus to come back. As we navigate through pain and suffering and death and sorrow and loss, we desperately long for the King because we know when He's here, when He's ruling and reigning on earth again, the scripture says that there will be no tears, that every tear will be, He will wipe away every tear, that hurting, suffering, and pain will all be removed and He will make it right which we'll talk a little bit more about next week. And lastly, it means this, that we live for the kingdom now. That because Jesus is coming back, and when he comes back, he's going to rule and to reign, that as citizens of his kingdom, we live well in this moment by trying to accomplish the work that God has called us to do. You see, in the ministry of Jesus, we see Jesus healing lepers, caring for orphans and widows, feeding the hungry. We see these beautiful acts of compassion. And Jesus says, this is what the kingdom looks like. And for us, as citizens of that kingdom, we live in the reality of that kingdom by walking in that same way, by continuing the ministry of Jesus. And lastly, I want to end you with this, this prayer of Paul in Romans chapter 15. And it's my prayer for you. It is this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, I know that many of you are going through deep tragedy, struggle, hardship, pain, and suffering. God wants to meet you in the middle of all of that. God wants to comfort you with all of that and letting you know that anything that has ever been done wrong any pain that's ever been inflicted, any injustice that's ever taking place, he will come back and make it right. That God, in his goodness, will restore things to how he, they were intended to be. And God will make right all the things that went wrong. May God fill you with his hope today. May he fill you with the power and presence of his spirit. And may you be reminded today that your hope is in the resurrection. God bless you guys. Grace and peace, church.
To see all the new content coming from Zion City, follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. And to partner with us financially, visit our website at zioncitychurch.net.